Let's take our Bibles. Let's head over to the book of Nehemiah. book of Nehemiah, as we get started, if you don't have notes, raise your hand. The usher will get that to you. We're starting with the book of Nehemiah, which has a lot, a lot of tremendous principles for life's living and as well as um, what we can do, how we can serve better, and dealing with a lot of life issues. Let me ask this question as, uh, as we just get our minds rolling. What are some traits... If you were to look, um, we play this game sometimes with, with the kids, grandkids. It's like, who is your hero and why? You do this. Okay, don't give me the name of who your hero is, but somebody that you would look up to, what traits are they, do they have, that you would say, now that makes a good, a good hero, a good leader? Honesty. Honesty? Okay. Anything else? Dedication? Anything else? Enthusiasm. Okay. Okay, some zeal, enthusiasm, humility. humility. Any other tr- attributes you would look up to? Integrity. Okay. What's that? Surrounding their companions, their compatriots, whoever. Good crowd. Okay. What's that? Down to earth. Okay, let's, let's broaden the spectrum. What makes a good political leader, a civil leader? So, some of those things we cannot. <laughs> okay, straight-faced? I was reading a story, true story, about um, it was Richard Nixon running for, running for uh, one of his first offices, and his lawyer that he was in, in, um, uh, in business with before he ran for public office, he told his lawyer partner. He said, you'll never make, it, never make it much in politics. He says, why is that? He says, you're just too honest. You don't know how to lie. You know, wow. What, yeah, yeah. I mean, what a philosophy of life that you have to know how to lie and get away with it. We, we have a lot of traits that we would look at and say, this makes somebody an admirable person. I, I would add to those types of things. Somebody who has genuine compassion. Somebody who would serve others. I mean, isn't Jesus, didn't he say those of you who would be the first should be? Yeah, yeah. And if you want to be great in this earth, serve other people. So you have a lot of those traits. Those traits seem to be really personified in this character, Nehemiah, that many people don't know much about him. Nehemiah is a civil leader. He's a political leader. He is not the religious leader at the time. In fact, he's a compatriot or a colleague at the same era as Ezra. Ezra is more the spiritual leader, the, uh, the, the prophet leader. And Nehemiah, who comes a few years later after Ezra, he is the political leader. And yet as a politician, as a political leader, he is a person that has integrity and honesty and compassion. He's one of those rare birds, somebody that really personifies what it means to make a difference in the world around you. And he made a tremendous difference. There's a, the account takes a, a situation where they are, the people are devastated. They look like a hurricane has just come through their town. And it's been that way for a number of decades. And as we'll see this morning, there's a lot of political intrigue that takes place contributing to the demise of Jerusalem, why it is in absolute disarray, why they haven't built it up. In 90 years, they haven't been building the, rebuilding this city, though they sent people there. They were going to rebuild it, but some of their enemies roundabout got the emperor against it, and he said, no more building, and so they had to stop, and they have to leave it like a, uh, a typical modern-day ghetto, that it was just in decay. And so there's a lot of politics going on. There's a lot of pressure. Nehemiah comes in, he's, and he's like, 
like, okay, we gotta, we got to straighten this mess up. We have got to get the city rebuilt, but to get the city rebuilt, we have to focus on one area, and that, that it has to be our priority. It's called building the walls. He's going to come in and he's going to build the walls. And they have been used, the walls have been used for making fences. The bricks from the walls have been used for building some of the shanties that are nearby. And so people are scavenging off the walls. He comes along and he rallies the group of people who are discouraged, disheartened, living in a ghetto atmosphere and feeling like there's nothing that they can do to change it. And what, what leadership is there uh, at the time, they are corrupt as corrupt could be. They are like the leadership where was it in Michigan where the leadership knew about the polluted water but made extra money off the water is that Michigan that had the, the city that had so much problems and there were so many people out of graft that, that and they caused the people the, the average citizen to be put in danger well that's what's going on when, he, when Nehemiah shows up there is graft, there is corruption at the top, and so he's got to deal with civil leaders that are, that are corrupt. The uh, priests are corrupt, and there's lots of enemies round about. And yet he comes in there, he rallies the people, the core people, the, uh, the, the general populace, and they rebuild the walls entirely in 52 days. That doesn't seem like a lot, but back in Bible days, that, it's a tremendous feat to, one, get people to do work when these people are discouraged and defeated, um, to get them to do this consistently despite the pressure that comes from the outside, plus they're, they're being taken advantage. Their kids are being sold into slavery for debt to other Jewish people. And so they, they've got family issues, they've got moral issues, and it's a terrible, terrible situation. And yet he rallies these people, gets them to do the job, and they do it in a remarkable period of time. And then he ends up getting himself installed as a result of this, being installed as governor, and turns the culture, turns the entire environment into one of honesty and integrity. So how does an individual come along and make an impact that way? Now you may not be in a, in a broken down city. You may be in a broken down neighborhood, a broken down job, a broken down business, a broken down you know, neighborhood. You may be in a situation where you've got a family that is broken down and some of your relatives, you know, they're, they're just, you know, there's, how do we get these people to contribute to try to turn the corner and get things going forward? So we're talking about traits, we're talking about um, dealing with people, we're going to look at issues about how to respond Here's one that I think Nehemiah is is incredible as an example. How do you respond when other people tell lies about you? One way you can respond is slash their tires. Okay? Or most of us wouldn't do that. What is the typical response to somebody that tells lies about you? What is the typical worldly response to that? Tell lies... But yeah, retaliation, okay? Nehemiah is going to get a public letter published about him, and it's going to be spread to his, uh, his um, what's the word, uh, his authority over him. And they're going to be lying about it. It's amazing how he responds. It's an absolute incredible uh, an account and a good example of how to respond to that. How do you respond when you're going to somebody over you and you're going to ask them to change their mind? That's chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to go to the king and he's going to say to the king, I would like to go back and rebuild this wall. You and I, if we don't read the background story, we don't realize that 12 years before Nehemiah asked in chapter 1. Do you remember in chapter 1, chapter 2, he comes before the king and the king says, why are you sad? 
Because he's got this plan. I'd like to go back and rebuild the city. If you don't realize, unless you do Bible, a background study, 12 years before that same king issued a decree, nobody is to be building the walls. So he's going to be asking the king to revoke his own decree as if the king had made a mistake. So how do you go to an authority over you and ask them to change policy that they've incorporated because you think it's a better policy and they're going to have to swallow a little bit of crow if they do this? And so this is re- there's, a lot of, there's a lot of details here, how to deal with people, how to deal with people under you, over you, how to deal with people next to you, how to deal with issues of discouragement and tiredness. Now, none of you and I, we don't live in a culture that's busy. We live in this real backwards culture. I tell you what, when we were up on vacation up north, I'm telling you, a slow culture. Alaska is slow. No wonder things freeze. It doesn't move. Okay. And they kept on saying, oh, don't you want to come up here? No, this is way too slow. East Coast, I like the East Coast. Okay. It's much faster. We were back, then we went from Alaska and ended up in Minnesota. Still too slow. East Coast is a little bit faster, a little bit faster pace. But sometimes does the fast pace wear us out physically? Yeah, okay, it does. Sometimes we're tired just because all the busyness around us. Nehemiah has that. He has all these issues. And so when we get into the story, let's, let's do some background. Let's get into initial some of the character traits and some applications we can make out of this first chapter. Let's, let's pick it up. Chapter 1. Let's read through. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, or Susa, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, uh, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, I mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let's just stop there. To understand what he's talking about, let's do a little bit of background information, get to the spot. About 2000 BC, we'll give you a chronological chart, just very, very simple, but from the Old Testament. 2000 BC, God calls Abraham, calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. This is the beginning of the Hebrew nation. That God is going to make one family, the Hebrew family, the one through he's going to send Messiah in time. So he moves Abraham out of the Babylonian uh, region and into what we know as the promised land. You know that story. About 1800, the Hebrews then are going to end up down in Egypt. They move down there. At first they move down there and they are here, they are greeted. All 70 of them are greeted and they're lauded. They're given places to sleep, to eat, to farm, and they are accepted. But then in a period of time, they become very, very great in number and they, the Egyptians started to fear them and they lose favor with Pharaoh and they become slave for, slaves for a period of uh, 400 years. So it doesn't take long before they go into slavery. About 40, uh, 14 B.C., then that's the story of Moses coming and, the, and we have the Passover, we have the Exodus, and right after him, Joshua, moving back into the Promised Land, they start conquering the Promised Land. And remember, under Joshua, they don't conquer all of it. They break the backbone of all the people 
people, but then it's up to the tribe of Asher to really clean house in their territory. Naphtali, you do your own community. Judah, you do your territory. But we've broken the back, but you've got to take care of the uh, small little tribal uh, groups in your region. So they have the book of Judges. And then after the book of Judges, we have a period where they establish a king, a monarchy. After 300 years of the Judges, which every man does right in their own eyes, all of a sudden they shift. The people say, we want a king, and they establish kingdom under three kings. And they unite all 12 tribes. You have Saul, David, and Solomon. They each rule for about a 40-year period. Under those two, the golden years are David's rule and going into Solomon's rule. And so they are really strong, powerful. They become the great nation of that area and of that era. They are the predominant peoples of that time period. And then they have a civil war. They divide into what we call the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ten tribes form the northern kingdom. They break away from David's family. They don't want David's children to be the heir anymore. And so under Solomon's son, there's civil war. And he ends up with only two remaining tribes, Judah. And what was the second one? Benjamin, Benjamin. And so then the ten tribes up north take the name Israel. The southern tribes take the name, the southern two tribes take the name Judah. Now remember, in the north, there is no good king for the next few generations. In the south, there are only five good kings. All of the kings in the south are going to be descendants of David. And so the northern kingdom gets away from the temple worship. They develop their own type of worship, their own priesthood. They eventually develop their own thought about the word of God and they filter off into a lot more paganism. One of their most infamous kings is Jezebel and Ahab. Yeah, and they have all kinds of corruption. Now, during this time, God sends prophets to both to try to get revival. And don't make the mistake. There is the, some will say, well, the ten tribes in the north, they get conquered, which they do. Right around 722, they get annihilated in battle. And there is no more northern kingdom. There is no more capital city. The people are taken away. Now, some have concluded and developed theologies that those tribes in the north, they are ten of them, that they are the ten lost tribes. And some have developed theologies that said Great Britain, and therefore us, we are part of the ten lost tribes of Israel. That doesn't happen biblically. The Bible makes it very clear that during some of those years before 722, a number from each one of the tribes, they migrate to the south. So there is a remnant of each and every tribe in the southern kingdom and they, are, they keep themselves pure. Not, not the majority, but there is always some remnant of the 12 tribes following Jehovah worship all the way through this Old Testament period of time. And so they aren't the lost tribes that become you know, the, uh, the nation of America or you know, the United Church, World Church or something like that. That's just, that's just you know, false history that doesn't follow Scripture. 606, the southern, tri- the southern two tribes with remnants of the other ten, they start getting pummeled. They start getting attacked. They have, they have been given more time by God to make sure they're doing right, to keep right. But they've had some bad kings mixed in with those five good kings. So God has warned them, if you don't get on the ball, I'm going to start sending in enemies like I did 
the Assyrians up north, I'm going to send in enemies and they're going to be my spanking tool. They're going to, they're going to show you, you know, and you're going to reap some of your consequences. Well, they don't repent. They get more and more allowing some of the false worship. And so Babylon has replaced Assyria as the major power, and so God allows Babylon to come. And 606 is the first time that they invade. At that time of their first invasion, Daniel and several other of the youth are taken to Babylon as captives, as hostages, to make sure the king back in Judah and in Jerusalem, that he and the people there, that they follow Babylon's decrees. We are your, we are your overlords now. You pay tribute. We'll even take some of the nobility's kids as hostages to make sure you pay. Well, Daniel is sitting there in, um, uh, well, let, me, let me fill in a little bit more. Okay, so 597 comes the second attack because they didn't pay tribute. They got, they decided that they were big enough to uh, revolt against Babylon. So a second invasion comes. This is when Ezekiel and many of the upper class, middle and upper class, are taken as captives. And Ezekiel is moved to Babylon and to that region. And yet there's still a small group left in, in Jerusalem, and there's a governor in charge of them. The uh, dynasty, David's, David's generations, they're taken to Babylon as well. But there's a governor that's put in charge. And they revolt a third time, or another, a second time. And so in 586, this is when the Babylonians come, and they say, enough is enough. <clears throat> and they totally destroy Israel, uh, Jerusalem. And they move most of the people out. There is very little left there, but basically a lot of dirt and a lot of broken down buildings. Now Daniel lives through most all of this. Daniel has gone to Babylon in 606, and he has gotten himself to the position where he rises in authority, and he becomes second to the king. Now, when Daniel is there, he's reading scripture. He has his daily devotions. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And as he's reading the book of Jeremiah, remember what happens? He reads a passage that says the Israelites will be out of their land for how many years? Seventy years. And he is at the edge. This is Daniel 9. He is at the 69th year of this captivity. So we're talking from 606, so we're talking right around the 537 or so. He's reading his devotions, and he can add. He's a smart man. And he realizes next year is the year. It's the 70th year. What's going to happen to us? And God gives him the revelation and tells him that they're going to be able to go back. And the following year, 536, they get a decree that says some of the Jews can go back. And they can start rebuilding and starting putting together the nation. Now this is the first of several decrees. And so a group goes back and they start and their very first project, they want to as Jewish people, if you were Jewish people, okay, what, what would you want to build first and foremost? The temple. And so in 536, a group of them go back and they start building the temple. It is going to take everything of these 10,000 people, all that they have, plus whatever peoples they can gather who are any remnant, to work together and build the temple. And they get it built after several years. But do you remember the resp response? When they get it built, what is the response of the older men? They're Why are they crying? And one of it is, obviously, some would say they're crying because of joy that the temple is rebuilt. But it isn't joy. No, why are they crying? It's not like it used to be. They remember the, what do we say, what's that phrase? The good old days. Yeah, they say, we remember the beautiful temple of Solomon. This thing has nothing, nothing on Solomon's temple. It's smaller, it's not as ornate. And in their mind, this is this is the best they can do for God, but it sure shows how far they have fallen. 
because of their, because of their disobedience. Oh, by the way, let me, let me just add this. This is an important thought. What was the big sin of Israel prior to the captivity? It kept on showing up time and time again. Don't say, don't say homosexuality because it's a big sin in our day. It was idolatry. Then when they come back, idolatry is pretty much purged. Okay? It doesn't show up that much at all. Not, not the outward idolatry. It's got, I mean, they've gone through some really hard times and they've been purged of it. And they realize the cost of their sin has cost them this wonderful, grandiose spot. And so they're there and they, they obviously need to live. So what happens after this is the, there's other groups, expeditions that come. There's one of 10,000, there's one of 30,000, one of 40,000, that they are migrants, pilgrims, coming back over the next generations. And their goal is to re- rebuild not just the temple, but they want to start rebuilding the city. And they want to get to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is called Mount what in the book of Psalms? Mount Zion. Okay, it's the place of blessing. And so we got to get this place of blessing back in its peak in its heyday and become the centerpiece. And by the way, they know, they can read scripture, Jerusalem is going to become the capital city of the world. Well, right now it looks like a dump. So we got to get this thing ready for when the Messiah comes. They don't understand how all of theology and eschatology works. And so they're looking to say, we got to get this thing built up because we got to get ready for when the Messiah comes, that Jerusalem is rebuilt. And so a number of them go back. And so for a period of time, they start having some groups. One in 547 is allowed to go back and to, they're given a decree to go back and rebuild with the king's permission and to really, not just do a little bit, but to try to rebuild the entire city. We're going to come back to this, but remember 547, and remember shortly after this, you'll, you can put another date in, that they, are, they go back, they start rebuilding, and then they're going to be stopped. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Well, 540, 444, you know, that they were talking a dozen, a little over a dozen more years, then Nehemiah shows up. Nehemiah realizes that the city is is not been rebuilt. And the problem with rebuilding the city back in Bible days is they don't have walls. Why are walls so important to this work project? Now we're talking for those of you who are Army Corps of Engineers, okay? How come the, they, they should have started with the walls? Why are the walls so important? What's that? Protection from what? Okay, any enemies. Any enemies, obviously. Okay, anybody who could attack them. Anybody else you're projecting, or anything else you're protecting yourself from? The wild animals. Do you remember in the times that this is happening, lions are pretty uh, rampant in this region. Now, we don't live in that type of culture. When we were away, Anchorage, every, every month this year, somebody's been killed by a, a bear attack in the city. Because they live right, the animals in certain cultures, they live right next wall. The animal that lived next door was the lion. And so there needs to be protection, especially if you are, you know, let's put yourself in a scenario. Let's take a terrible, terrible scenario. If you're living in Jerusalem, you sacrificed to come there, and you want to help rebuild, what could really discourage you and take the wind out of your sails if something happened to one of your kids? Like what? Like a lion coming over the wall and taking your kid or grandkid. Would you then ask yourself this question? Why in the world am I here? 
Okay, that's the reality. That's what they're going through, that we don't, we don't put ourselves in their sandals because we're so removed. But that's the stuff they had to deal with. And so you've got to get these walls built for preservation, not just from enemies attacking, but what about thieves coming in? Do, do we have cultures where thieves come in and steal your stuff, your food, your, they loot? I mean, I mean, would it ever happen that a city like Houston gets flooded and then looters would show up? People would never do that, would they? Yeah, right, right. And you mean to say that somebody would take advantage of your, your problems? Sure. They were having that happen all the time. Oh, by the way, the looters in that day, are, they're on subs, substance as well. Remember, the region has been devastated. So this is, a, this is a bad situation. Nehemiah is thinking from a political, practical point of view. He's, he's looking and saying, God can protect, but at the same time, we've got to, how did the revolutionary say it? You know, pray to God, but keep your powder dry. Okay, we've got to do some effort here, okay? Does God provide our needs? Yes, but what do we have to do? Okay, we, do we have to work? Okay, the man that doesn't work shouldn't. Okay, so you, you put those, you correlate the two. There's some of our effort and some of the divine trust that we give in the divine. And so what's happening here is he's looking and saying, practically speaking, they're, they're not going to get the inside rebuilt until they put these walls up. And so he understands. And so when his brother, Hakaliah, comes back and gives him this report, he realizes that we've we got to get the walls they aren't, going to get, they aren't going to do anything long-term until they get the walls. So he is of the mindset, let's get those walls rebuilt, and then they'll be able to do more. So he's going to go from Susa, that is Shushan in Nehemiah 1. See it down in the right-hand corner? Susa, he's going to travel all the way to Jerusalem. This is going to take several weeks. Okay, And so Susa is the capital city that he is sitting in at the time, the summer palace, if you would, uh, of the emperor. And so he's going to have to make this trek back and go back and and get this city under you know, underway, and so it's, there's a lot of intrigue that's going to take place. And so the story goes with that. He, his brother comes, as we've just mentioned, um, he's the son of Hakali, his brother Hanani, excuse me. His brother comes back and gives him the account, and when he gives him an account, he's going to tell him things. Now, we stop and we say, who is Hakali? We don't know. We don't know, therefore, a whole lot of information about his heritage. We don't, we don't know if he comes from a line of judges. We don't, we don't have any clue. We don't know anything further about his family. And so there's not a lot of information. By the way, which is important for us, because sometimes we think that only those characters that had a certain bloodline were able to do a whole lot for God. That's not true. And, and by the way, let's, let's go back about two, three hundred years in history. Did people at that time really put a lot of stock in bloodline a lot more than we do in America? The answer is yes. So people who read the book of, of Nehemiah, they could read it like you and me and say, hey, he's, he seems like just a common Joe who has risen by integrity. He has risen to a position of authority, but it's not because of bloodline. We, um, we don't have any clue if he's related to David's family. So there's no accusation, no claim here that he was put in position because he is David's grandson, great-great-great-great-great-grandson. We don't know any of that. And it's not recorded. Because it's not recorded, the, in, the indication, implication is probably wasn't. We know that he was probably 
probably born and raised in a foreign land just based on the simple fact that they've been in captivity for a number of years and he raised himself into, into a position of prominence there in the city and so he must have had some connections and grew up during this period in the foreign land. And so we first hear about him. He's already in the capital city. He's serving as the king's cupbearer. We read about that. Where he makes a comment down at the end of chapter 1, look at the very last phrase. He says, for I was the king's cupbearer. That is an important spot in this whole story because it says in the next verse, and it came to pass in Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. I took up the wine, gave it to the king. Now I had not been be, uh, before time sat in his presence. Okay. The, we have to answer the question. Okay. This is an important thought. What is in this culture, what is the Persian? The Persian, by the way, the Persia is the new capital, uh, the, new, the new ruling power they've taken over from the Babylonians. What was in Persian society and in Persian monarchy, what did the cupbearer do? Well, it's very obvious by the title. What did he do? Okay, he, he basically brought the food to the king. You know, he brought the food. And if you were living in that culture, what would that mean you would do? You taste it before the king tastes it so that it tastes really good. Oh, you're taking, okay. Yeah, you are, you are the secret service agent that takes the bullet for the leader. Okay, if there's poison in it, you're dead. <laughs> You've done your job, okay, if that's the case. But in Persian culture, the cupbearer was more. Now, not necessarily in some of the other regions, but in Persian culture, what we hear from history and read from their own books, the cupbearer not only was the taster of the food, but you know what else he did? What's that? He could be a counselor. Yes, he could be one of the most intimate of counselors. Anything else? Any other details? This is really important to the whole story. He could be an advisor. Here's what we know from history. He serves as the king's private secretary. The private secretary is like what we have, uh, the chief of staff for the president, the one who sets up appointments and allows, basically, he arranges the, the king's schedule. Therefore, if, if all of a sudden, let, let's set up the scene, if Ron is the emperor's chief of staff, how do we treat Ron? Why? He's got the influence. And if I want to see the king, who do I have to go through? I got to go through Ron. And if I want to get Ron's attention, I might want to... Yeah, okay, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that could happen. He's not only the personal secretary. He was also the one who tasted the food. He was in charge of personal security, okay? So this guy was the, the head of the Secret Service, not just the kitchen, okay? So he is an individual to make, well, let's rephrase that into a question. What is the king's feeling towards this dude? It has to be trust. There has to be a great confidence in this guy. You would not put somebody that you don't question in charge of your personal security. Which, by the way, look at chapter 2, verse 1. The comment that he makes that's really important, I was never what in the king's presence before. Sad. Why is that so important? Why would the cupbearer, the chief of staff, why would the guy in charge of personal security come and always be showing a happy face? That, that's, yeah, it, let, let's rephrase that. If you came with a miserable-looking face, 
what would the king possibly suspect? Things are going bad in the kingdom. Okay, and by the way, we, we keep the king happy by telling him, okay, <laughs> okay, let's keep them in, you know, that everything's going good, okay? Um, as well, if you came and you're jittery, you're nervous, what might the king think you're doing? Well, then, maybe you've got something on your mind to get rid of me here. And you're nervous about taste testing. Because maybe you are in cahoots with somebody to, yeah, get me out. So it's very important. All this plays into a lot of details here in the story. And so if we look and say, okay, as the cupbearer, he would have been high up in government. That's a gimme. Okay, and that's very important what happens here, that he is in a very comfortable position Keep that in mind. He's in a comfortable position, yet what he's going to end up doing. He's trusted. He's influential. He's very busy. He would be the busy guy. He's in the know, and he would face a lot of temptations. Temptations from other people trying to get his ear, get his influence, and a lot of people playing him. And so this guy is in, this man of integrity is in the middle of this political intrigue in the kingdom of the kingdoms back in this time, in this uh, sector of the world. So that's his status. 444, 445, this is what is his, his story. Now, let, let me just back up. Here's the historical note that I mentioned. Okay, they start going back and they start rebuilding. Ezra 4 tells about this that Ezra and a group go back and they want to rebuild the city. They start doing the project according to Ezra 4 and what happens is all of a sudden some of the, uh, some of the intrigue comes back that they are told you can't build. You have to stop building. And the reason is the enemies who are active in that time, some of the Samaritans, we hear about them more and more later on, they are saying, okay, Ezra, you and these people are rebuilding Jerusalem. And by the way, they don't want Jerusalem rebuilt. Because if Jerusalem rebuilds, they lose their crony power in these little tribal settlements nearby. If Jerusalem becomes a fortress and there's, there's soldiers' position there. We can't do our marauding. We can't be local chieftains. That, that city will be, become the powerhouse, and we who are mighty and powerful in Myerstown, we will, we, we will lose our power. Ono is no longer the influential area. Harrisburg will become the influential area. And so that's what they're afraid of. And so they're going to oppose it. They write the emperor, according to Ezra 4, they write the emperor, and we think it's Artaxerxes, the same one for whom Nehemiah is the cupbearer. They write him a letter and they accuse the Jews of trying to rebuild so they can revolt. And they say this in the letter. You read it in Ezra 4. Um, They say, look at the history of the Jews. The Jews revolted time and time again to their previous masters. Is that true? Yes. They were invaded by Babylon three times. There's history that shows that these people did not give in easily, that they would revolt as soon as they felt their oats, they would start revolting again. So Artaxerxes reads, and he has his historians check out Babylon's records, and it's true. The web proves that all of a sudden these people have a history of revolting against the leaders. So Artaxerxes, who has, whose father and himself have allowed people to go back and rebuild, they have to rethink this policy. And so what he does is he sends a letter. And he orders, according to Ezra 4, I think it's verse 12, he orders no more building can take place until I so order. And so he leaves it open that they could rebuild. But it's a decree from the king. The Jews can't build anything anymore. 
And so it's been like that since, you know, for the last 12 years, none of the Jews have been able to rebuild. They haven't been able to, to uh, you know, put in the aqueducts or anything else that they needed. That is when we all of a sudden get to that situation where a dozen years later, here's Nehemiah, his brother has gone there, check things out, comes back and says, you know, what's the state of affairs? And his brother tells him, it's a bad situation. Why? No building. This is like going into Detroit, and all of a sudden we've got a executive order from the governor or the, um, you know, oh, let's, take, let's be more realistic. Let's go to Houston. Okay, let's, let's like Houston that's being flooded or one of the towns getting hit today. That'll be, that'll be annihilated by the hurricane. And it's kind of built down. And then we have executive orders. Nobody can build there until we say they can build there. Well, what about those poor people? What about those who are stuck there? The people who they can't move. They have, to, they have to live amongst rubble. And so they have to, their roadway is filled with, with you know, junk. They, they can't build the wall. They can't do anything for defense. They are very limited. Basically, they're in what type of mode? Survival mode. Okay, if you lived in survival mode, would your life change from where it is right now? Okay, drastically, drastically. Would that affect your attitude? Okay, would that affect... Any people around you trying to claw as to who's going to get ahead of who. So you have all this plays into it. And so Hananiah comes back and he says, Hananiah, what's it like? Hananiah says, they're in great afflictions, reproach, and the walls are broken down. Then we find through the rest of the book what he meant. In the rest of the book, we find out that the leaders, the, uh, and again, we're in a society that you're a leader based on what? Back then, what made you a leader? Not popularity. Your, your family. We call it birthright. Okay? Okay? If you had a birthright, you had power. Okay? Did that ever happen in other areas of the world? Okay. So are there historical records? I mean, even in early America, if you were of the bloodline, okay, which leads to what is the big problem with this, that type of situation? What is the huge weakness of bloodline nepotism and passing it on? You get bad leaders. You get incompetent leaders. Like the monarchies in Europe who are inbreeding so much, what type of leaders did you end up with? Insane people. Yes? Okay, so you had, you had back in Jerusalem, you have families that are inbreeding, okay? You, you marry your class. Again, different culture from you and me, but you marry on your level of society. There's a caste system. You don't rise in rank just because you're skilled or intelligent. In fact, you're probably not educated because you're not of the right bloodline. Okay, so you've got this culture where the bloodline leadership is in charge. They only know one thing for the most part keeping themselves in power, exercising their power. They, and so what we read in, in uh, Nehemiah 8 and 9 is these people are getting rich off the backs of other people by collecting all their family, their family uh, uh, properties. So you went there, you moved back to Jerusalem, you have deeds to certain areas in the region because that came down through you by family heritage. Remember, Jewish culture, you had to keep your family heritage because it was part of God's um, um, inheritance to you. So you have it. You don't have anything else, but you've got property. 
Okay, you don't have the ability to farm that property or do very little, but you're doing subsistence farming anyway. And so if you ended up in debt because of a bad crop, what do you have to sell that you're not supposed to sell, but what is the only thing you have yet to sell? You've got to sell your property. So all of a sudden, these, these wealthier folk, they're starting doing land grabbing. Can you imagine people ever doing that? Yeah, you know, land grabbing. And then if you, they're letting you be tenant farmers on there, okay? And as a tenant farmer, if you don't raise enough to pay the mortgage and the taxes they're charging, and especially, what would they, what would they all of a sudden start really charging? Interest on, the, on what you, they've loaned you so you could plant seed. All of a sudden, you don't have anything left except for, and again, this is not American culture, this is ancient culture, what do you sell or give to them that might be of value? You've already given them their property. You give them your children. You give them your kids. And all of a sudden, these wealthy people are owning all kinds of servants. They have lots of property. And so the leadership is really corrupt. And, and, they are, and, and leadership that gets really corrupt, what is the one thing that they want to hang on to? Yeah, stay in power. Nehemiah is going to show up and say, you guys got to stop this. You got to give the kids back. Well, that's like reaching into somebody's pocketbook. You know, how are they going to respond to it? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. We, we've been too greedy. Shame on us. Right? Is that, is that what happens? No, no. So he's got a job. There's moral problems. There's a, there's, they're gonna, we're going to find out as we go through the book. There's a lot of immorality taking place. The people aren't prospering. There's enemies round about. They're surrounded by thieves who are coming in. And poverty is the, is the you know, that's it for the majority of people. And so he's, he hears about this. And Nehemiah's response when he hears the bad news is according to the passage, what does he do when he hears it? He does three things. Did you catch it? His response when he, he says in verse 4, it came to pass when I hear these words, I sat down, and then what's he do? He weeps, he mourns, and he does the fasting and praying. And so the, what does that tell you? Just taking those three things, what does that tell you about Nehemiah? Okay, why do you say he's godly? Because he weeps and Okay, he's gonna, his, <clears throat> his fasting and praying obviously indicates He's a very godly man. What, uh, what else do you catch out of it? Why do you get compassion out of that? You speak a little bit longer so I can get my drink here. Sure. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a thought. You just brought up something that in my reading, and we don't know this. What drew Hannah and I there? Was it just an exploration? He wanted, Hannah and I just wanted to take a trip for, you know, for six months. I just want to go and see Jerusalem, you know, see the thing. Some suggest that there was family there, which might have been some of the, some of the draw that some of his previous relatives had gone there, so there would be more of a draw because there obviously isn't a hotel that he wants to stay in. There isn't something there that maybe the temple, but we really don't know. But he's, he's got a tie to these people. Nehemiah, basically, let's, let's throw, put out some character traits before we have to wind up. Those who make a difference, and that's where I'm calling Nehemiah, a person who makes a difference. I think these are character traits that we should uh, highlight. They are people who genu- genuinely care and empathize with others in need. When I say genuinely, there is, a, there is a big difference here between caring and empathizing and genuinely caring and empathizing. What's the big difference? 
One could be show only. And what does the other one do? Do something. Really do something. And so he's not this detached, removed individual. You can say what you want about the politics. But Bill Clinton presented himself, and he, wasn't, he, he was very effective in his popularity because what was his phrase that he used? That people, and he showed it. I, f- I feel your pain. Okay? And do people respond to somebody who feels the pain and understands that? And so, you know, he is, and this is, this is an incredible thought. When you and I look at the culture, and again, you, we are so Americanized that we're all, we all know this. We can make anything we want out of ourselves and all. We're in a totally different environment when we go back to this day and age where Nehemiah was. Nehemiah is living in a world that is really centered, and by the way, America is too in many ways, but it's really centered about who is the world centered upon? Me, myself, and I. And we have that today in our world. In their world, it was just, hey, I am this person who's second to the king. I, I'm going to keep this comfortable position. That's not what he does. He's, got an, he's an individual who empathizes. He is one, who, is one who, is not a, who is not afraid nor ignore uncomfortable situations. Um, have, have any of you done these cruises that you go down into the islands and then you get off the cruise and you can start walking around and you get about two blocks away from the dock and what do you run into? Poverty. Poverty. I remember a description I heard from somebody years and years ago. I don't remember who it was, but it was an interesting observation that they made. I was, I was more interested in observing their response. Is They said, wow, we got down there, and we got a couple blocks away from the dock. They, they got to clear that whole thing out because it's just kind of disgusting to see all the poverty. You know, they should just clear it away. And it was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is that how we respond to poverty? We don't want poor people infringing on our vacation mode that's all about eating everything we can. Okay. And I'm not saying the cruise is wrong. Don't, don't go there. I'm just saying an attitude that just basically says, let's ignore, let's move away. The... They disturbed my vacation. That, that is not a Nehemiah attitude. Nehemiah was one that he looked beyond his own circumstances and he, it isn't all about me being content. It was more about other people's and their needs. And even though he's busy, 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 busy guy in leadership, he is going to say, okay, we can't ignore this situation. And even though these people are far away, you know, there's, there's six weeks traveling by fast camel, okay? Um, you know, he's going, to be, he's going to be concerned about him. It's kind of like Houston's far away from us today. Florida's far away from us. There were, there, let's just forget about them. We can't do that. We, we ought not to do that. Those who make a difference are people who work on our good listening. He does this towards his brother. He listens to his brother. And here's the thought that I just wanted to dwell on for a second is, too many times people in leadership, me, I'm really guilty of this, too many times in leadership we are used to giving orders, telling others what to do, getting things administered, and we don't listen. We do that in our homes. We, we who are in charge of the home, we, we want to tell everybody else what to do, but we don't always listen. 
and in business, whatever, a really important aspect is learning to be a good listener. When you all just listening to individuals, whether it be your spouse, your kids, listening to individuals who are your co-workers, you're a foreman, learning to listen, to give some, some graciousness, to respect that individual that says, okay, I, I need, by, by just portraying an attentiveness, it is so, so helpful in building up this relationship with this person as being an influential, positive leader in whatever position I'm at is saying, okay, I want to work on honing my listening skills. Let me give you another thought here. He is one who got involved with praying. Praying personally, where he starts praying. And if you notice his prayer, which is in the next few verses, he prays and he says, with the, he's fasting and praying, the brokenheartedness. And then he says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven. And he starts talking about this. Okay, by the way, I need to add this. When he prays, he gives us his length of this prayer. He starts in the month of Chislu, and then the next date he gives us, we're talking four months later when he's in the month of Nisan. And he's telling us that during this period of time, during his four months, he was dedicated to praying. Praying, praying, praying on a regular basis. That he was praying for the needs of other individuals, though he was miles away, which we should be doing for Florida, for Houston, and those individuals. And his praying became such an, a priority in his life that he is fasting. Even though he's in, surrounded by luxury and plenty, he is going to end up praying and fasting. And with his, with his request before the Lord, asking the Lord to work in a special way. Um, and during this time, Time, he is praying about his plans. We're going to get into it next week. He is doing all kinds of planning while he's praying. He's planning and making preparations. So his prayer doesn't become a substitute for the planning aspect, but he does a lot of his homework and saying, okay, while I'm praying, I need to get things organized. Here's what strikes me. You've got to help me out. In, in some of our translations, it says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. Do you have something different for terrible? Because terrible sounds bad in English. He's calling God terrible. What do you have? Awesome. The word literally is you're amazing. You're an awesome God. So he gets involved with praying, and we'll pick up here next week. He, as he prays, he brings up God's own word. Why, when you and I pray, should we remind God of his words? Is it because God is feeble that he's forgotten his promises, or is there a benefit at times praying God's own words back to him? We'll pick up there next week with that question as we get started into chapter 2.